You know, Scripture says, and the Lord Jesus as well says, my house will be house, a house of prayer for all nations. As we've been praying, we're going to continue praying, and there's going to be a time um, early on in the message that I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer as well. But uh, as we go into the message, um, pray that God gives us wisdom, understanding, and boldness, especially with all the things that are going on in our world today. Recently, we witnessed the importance of open doors and the horror of locked gates. In a word, Afghanistan. The withdrawal of American civilians and troops and Afghans who helped us over the past 20 years in the war was supposedly accomplished. An amazing success, some say. But in reality, we failed miserably, contrary to what many news outlets are telling us, to include reports coming from the White House and the Pentagon press secretary. I take no pleasure in saying this. Are we out of Afghanistan? Officially, yes. But the numbers are these. Some say hundreds. Others say thousands. This is how many Americans the current administration left behind and who are now under Taliban control. For a number of days, the doors were open and many people got on the planes to freedom. And in the mad rush to get through the open doors, many Afghans were desperate to escape the grip of the Taliban. You've seen the pictures and the videos, and I don't need to go into all that horror. You've seen it. But other people, even American citizens, encountered locked gates. Let me give you some examples of this from those who actually have boots on the ground. According to Just the News website, headed up by respected journalist John Solomon, text messages between U.S. military commanders and private citizens tell stories of frantic Americans pleading to get out of country but were left behind at the Kabul airport gate. We're abandoning American citizens, an Army colonel assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division wrote in frustration in a series of encrypted messages that detailed a failed effort to get them out of Afghanistan. And by the way, according to the Epic Times, uh, an article was published on Friday that some of those still there include a group of 24 students from Southern California, along with some of their parents who are visiting relatives in Afghanistan and are still stranded. More text messages and emails provided by Michael Yon, a former Special Forces soldier and war correspondent who was among the private citizens working with private networks and the military to rescue stranded Americans. Some of the messages Jan wrote were directed toward an Army major who was in charge of a portion of the evacuation. And I quote, You guys left American citizens at the gate of the Kabul airport. Three empty jets paid for by volunteers were waiting for them. You and I talked on the phone. I told you where they were, gave you their passport images and my email and phone number, and you left them behind. These horrific stories can be multiplied many fold. But they stand in sharp contrast to the pledge of the Biden White House that U.S. citizens would not be left behind in the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Now, I say all of this not to be 
unnecessarily abrasive. However, to say that the war in Afghanistan has ended and that we as a country need to move on when hundreds, if not thousands of American citizens are in the control of the, of the Taliban, our sworn enemies, is cruel at best and, in my opinion, treasonous at worst. Let's not forget that fundamentalist Muslims, of which the Taliban are, consider us, U.S. citizens, whether we are Christian or not, as the great Satan. Does anybody really think that the present regime has any kinder, gentler thoughts about us now that they're in charge with many of our fellow citizens under their control, along with, I don't know, $85 billion worth of weapons that we gave them? How we need to continue to doing what is the best thing to do in this regard, and that is to pray. This is, this is appalling to me. And so we need to bombard heaven with our prayers. And so if you would please join me in prayer. Father, you see the wickedness in our country, in the present administration. And Lord, it's not just the present administration, but past administrations as well. Lord, Sinful human beings started all of this. And Lord, right now, there are American citizens. Many are sinners, yes, we get that. Many are separated from you, lost in their sins, we get that. But Lord, right now, these American citizens are under the control of an evil regime called the Taliban. They are our sworn enemies. They consider every U.S. citizen to be part of the great Satan. Lord, their satanic religion has blinded their minds, blinded their hearts, hardened them to any kind of humanitarian, any kind of human um, compassion. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are above it all. We thank you, Lord, that you are in control. We thank you, Lord, that in your heart of compassion that you will take care of this. Lord, you love us. You even love the Taliban. But Lord, you hate what's going on. You died for those in the Taliban. You also died for us in the, as Americans. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the king. Thank you that you are the Lord of lords. One day you're going to come back and you're going to make it all right. But until that time, we're asking you, God, that you would help this situation. Somehow, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in it. Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help us to continue praying for our, our American citizens and especially for the church there in Afghanistan. I pray that you would give them great strength. pray that you would enable them to have uh, just a, um, an amazing witness at this time. Lord, we pray that you would turn the Taliban to yourself. And Lord, for those who will not do that and that you will harden their hearts, Lord, I pray that you would get glory even out of that. So, Lord, we commit all this into your hands and our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. But I'm sure that today you didn't come here to hear my rantings. But I'm equally certain that we all have strong opinions about what's going on in Afghanistan. But one thing we can all agree on, whether we think that the administration did right 
or did wrong or somewhere in the middle. None of us, none of this is lost on the Lord. He knows it all together. He knows exactly what's going on. And he also sees what no one else sees, for he sees into the future. Indeed, he lives in the future, just like he lives in the present. He lives in the past. He's outside time. One other thing that we can be certain about is God will glorify himself in all of this mess. More on that later. Now, there's a reason, though, why I I began this message this way. In our passage for today, Deuteronomy 3, 12 through 29, we see glorious open doors and horrendous locked gates in relation to Israel and their inheritance and entrance into the land of promise. So if you don't have your Bibles out yet, uh, please turn them to them, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 12 to 29. Let's look first at these open doors for part of Israel in Deuteronomy 3, verses 12 to 22. And then we will helplessly watch as Moses encounters his own locked gates in relation to the Lord's not allowing him to come into the land of promise in verses 23 to 29. And allow me to simply sum up these first few verses, uh, verses 12 to 17, about what Moses experienced or about what Moses gave, actually, to several of the tribes in Israel. Moses gave the Reubenites and the Gadites and the territory, or the territory called Gilead, and to half the tribe of Manasseh, he gave the territory called Bashan. Now, let's talk a little bit about Bashan. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Those who've been following, you know that Bashan is a very unique place. It is a very sinful place. This is, as Mike Heiser would say, ground zero for evil. And to use the words the Lord Jesus used about this very region, he called it the gates of hell. So again, let's look at verse 13 here of Deuteronomy 3. He says, all that portion of Bashan is called the land of the Rephaim. Now, again, this wasn't an evil place, spiritually speaking. A place where Og, an evil king, the last of the Rephaim, literally a spawn of evil, lived. And as we remember from our last time in Deuteronomy, the Lord gave Israel complete victory not only over him, but also another Amorite king, Sion, in what I call the Siog campaign. But in a very real sense, Israel was not supposed to be there. They were not supposed to be engaging the Amorites outside the land of promise to include Og and his army in Bashan. They were supposed to be in the promised land, enjoying the Lord and enjoying the, the, the inheritance that God had given them. But Israel had a decades-long setback, born out of fear because they listened to some fake news, some scary spy stories, you know, the eyewitness reports that came back for the 12 spies they brought back as they spied out Yahweh's land. And as a nation, they failed to believe the Lord, and he barred Israel from entering his land for 40 years. But by his grace and his patience, The Lord worked with His people, and He trained them, and He strengthened them, and He encouraged them. And now, 40 years later, not only did the Israelite army serve as God's instrument of judgment on the Amorites, the army even took on 
giants, evil giants, and defeated them. Now, again, in these verses, Moses lays out the boundaries and mentions a couple of mighty warriors in the Syed campaign. And you can see on the map back here where these tribes gained their inheritance. At the bottom, near the Dead Sea, in orange, you see that's where Reuben settled. And in the middle, in the green, that's where Gad was. And then on the top, in purple, that's the land that Moses gave half the tribe of Manasseh. Again, none of this was in Yahweh's land. It was on the eastern side of this. But I see a grace-filled lesson for all of us here. See, Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh received their inheritance through the obedience to the king because they all went in there and they destroyed their enemies. They chose to live in the land that was really outside the land of promise. But it was land that they conquered because the Lord gave them the empowerment and, and the, the, the ability for them to do that. But remember the history. The Israelites rebelled, and the Lord disciplined them for 40 years. But eventually, the Israelites gave themselves back into the Lord's hand. They repented of their rebellion. And as a result, the Lord restored them and recommissioned them to judge the Amorites. Remember what happened with Jesus and Peter. You know, Peter was restored, right, after he repented. But the Lord recommissioned Israel after decades of discipline and training. And as a nation, Israel was disqualified for a time. An entire nation languished in the wilderness. But Yahweh, the suzerain, the great king, was not finished with Israel, his vassals. He was disciplining them by his grace. And the Lord saw to it that when it was time, Israel was ready to go when it was time for them to go to war. And same with us. You know, sometimes we have major setbacks. Sometimes we have minor setbacks in our lives. And you know, these setbacks may or may not have to do with our own personal sin, but they all have to do with the fact that we live in a fallen world. How we handle setbacks determine in large measure how the Lord will use us to accomplish His will. You know, some people walk away from the Lord when the times get tough, and they never come back. Permanent apostasy. You know anybody like that? Others temporarily walk away from the Lord, but do come back. Remember what raised God's ire. The nation believed the scary spy stories, and their fear was real. But tra and tragically, they falsely accused the Lord and assigned to Him a motive that was born out of their fear. You know, all of us are broken, aren't we? Some of us broken very deeply. Scars are visible. And sometimes they're scars of our own doing, our own making, self-inflicted. You know, and the shame sometimes blinds us and we so often beat ourselves up and far too many of us conclude, because of our circumstances, sometimes how we got ourselves into, sometimes we conclude that God doesn't love us, that sometimes God doesn't accept us. But that's a lie from our own souls, or it's a lie from the enemy of our souls. The Lord knows us, those of us in the family of God, doesn't He? He knows us through and through. He loves us. He works with us. He even severely disciplines us. You know, the writer to the Hebrews calls this scourging. 
We know what a scourge is, don't we? It's called cat of nine tails. He does this to every one of his sons and his daughters. And he does it for the purpose that we might share his holiness. But holiness is what the Lord is after in our lives. And think about your life. Think about mine. In the mundane, when no one's looking, the internal fight, the struggle, the temptation to give in, to give in and say, you know, why, why should I continue? What's the use? Well, imagine, if you will, that you were one of the Israelites who had gone out into the battle in the Syog campaign. No spotlight on you. You're just one of the many masses there. You got the sword in your hand, and you're up to your eyebrows, swinging the sword of the Lord. You slay some of the enemy. In extreme weariness, you continue engaged in the battle. And then all of a sudden, the battle's over. And you and your brothers and sisters remain standing while the foes are lying at your feet. And the longer you've been a Christian, and you know this, don't you? The more spiritual battles you have waged. You sustained a lot of injuries, perhaps. But regardless of whether you've been following the Lord for just a few weeks or even 50 years or more, remember it was the Lord's initiative that started this whole thing. He called you to salvation, and you answered that call. It is He the one that did this for you. And He is the one that you can rely on until complete victory is yours, or more, more appropriately, till the victory is ours together. See, we will all share in the spoils of the warfare because it is the captain of our salvation who has actually won the campaign. Amen? Remember Paul's words in Romans 8.32. He said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, if the Lord's eternal salvation cost him that much, don't you think that he will give us everything we need to succeed in accomplishing His will in the here and now? Let's trust the Lord in the good times. That's relatively easy to do, isn't it? But when the times are tough, let's continue to trust the Lord and cling to Him ever more tightly. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our confidence and obedience. And so now, let's turn the corner and talk a little bit about Reuben and Gad, and Manasseh, and what they were supposed to do now that they received their inheritance. Verses 18 to 22. Moses writes, I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All of your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Now, we don't have the time to go into the, the full account of this story here, of what Moses kind of made a summary statement all about. 
And in Numbers 32, Moses initially told them that they could not have what they were asking for because that's what they did. They came to ask for this land. And Moses said initially, no. Why? Because he feared that they're opting out of going into the battle because they already had their inheritance. Moses told them that the rest of the clans would lose heart if the Reubenite army and the Gadite army and half of the Manassite army would sit on their inheritance. Or he thought that their attitude would be, hey, I've got my inheritance, now you go get yours. But Reuben and Gad and Manasseh vowed that they would not do that. They swore before the Lord that their armies would not only help out, but they would stay in the fight until the land was secure. And upon hearing that vow, Moses said, okay, I will give you this, what you're asking for. And here in verse 18, Moses reminded these tribes that their warriors would not only join in the battle, but they would take in the lead. They would lead until the victory was won. And what a great truth this is for us as people who are warriors in the body of Christ. How tragic is the attitude that so many Christians have, those who claim to be Christians, when it comes to the rest of the body of Christ. See, many have made Christianity so individualistic that the temptation to live in their personal blessings, forget about everybody else, has become a reality. It's as though many say, I have my salvation. I'm going to heaven. It's all about me. I come to church. I get my blessing. I go home. I live my life. You don't want to be like that? After all, they say, it's Jesus and me. And we become like Moses feared that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassites would do now that they had their blessings. But our relationship with Christ has never been an individualistic matter, has it? Truly, each of us has come to Christ individually, yes. But God, by His Spirit, places us as individuals into a group of people that numbers in the multiplied millions all around the world. How many people are saying, I want something bigger than myself? Well, guess what? If you're part of the body of Christ, you are in something bigger than yourself, much bigger. We are not allowed to live as though it's just Jesus and me. Because the truth is, it never has been just Jesus and me. What is the truth? It's Jesus and we. Jesus and we. We need to care for one another as family members of Grace United and those who are tuning in, other places, Facebook Live or whatever. If you're a Christian, it's your privilege and your responsibility to enter into relationships with your brothers and sisters in your local area and serve with them right where they are, right where you are. But the lesson for us ought to be clear. Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. But they were not to merely take it easy now that they had their blessing. They were the first to receive their inheritance, but they were not to only help their brothers enter into the inheritance. But Moses charged them to lead the way. And for us, those of us in the body of Christ, the more mature need to lead the way. We are to boldly proclaim to our brothers and sisters in Christ, follow me as I follow Christ. And if you can't say that as a Christian, my question is, why not? Why can't you say that? See, we're to take the lead 
in waging spiritual warfare. The mature are to lead the way in to, to help our fellow brothers and sisters, to equip them and train them and encourage others so that we can all engage in the battle. And I think of our intercessory time of prayer on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. But in all seriousness, you don't have to raise your hand about this, but how many of you have family, friends, neighbors that are unsaved and you're concerned about them? Or how many of you have people that you know who are living in apostasy right now? It's my prayer for all of us who call Grace United Family Church their home is that God would set his people to praying. So my question is, where are you on Tuesday night? I'll be honest, there's only like four or five of us. There's time, sweet times of, of prayer and fellowship, but you are needed here. So set aside the time, seven to eight, Tuesday nights, be here. We need to pray together to engage in spiritual warfare for our loved ones. The same is true regarding the only job the Lord has given us. And what is that job He's given to the church? Make disciples. That is the only job He's given us. Go and make disciples of all nations. I think I've heard that somewhere before, and I think you have too. But it's obvious though, isn't it? Some are more mature than others. And in the words of a song that Cindy Morgan wrote and sang, the race is not just for the runners. Some of us walk, and some of us barely crawl. Now, you know, the writer to the Hebrews had something to say about those who were exposed to the ways of the Lord but didn't put it into practice by being disciples themselves or to make disciples. And here was Apollos, at least I think that's who wrote the book of Hebrews, Apollos, that he was teaching his readers about a guy named Melchizedek. As he was teaching, he stopped in mid-sentence, so to speak. And he goes no further in his teaching because he was convinced that they won't get it simply because they are not mature in the ways of the Lord. And so I would have us to turn to Hebrews chapter 5, 11 and 14. So put your finger in Deuteronomy. We're going to come back. But Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14. Apollos reminds and even chides his readers about where they are, their lack of following the Lord, their lack of putting things into practice. So the book of Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14. We need to see these words in our Bibles. About this, we have much to say, again, concerning Melchizedek. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by what? Constant use to distinguish good from evil. If you're on the milk of the word, guess where you are not? You're not practicing what God's word says. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to his disciples about this sort of thing as well. He told them and us by extension in Luke 18. He says, Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. 
Now, the point of both these passages is simply this. If you don't use it, what? You're going to lose it. Our spiritual muscles will atrophy. We are responsible in the Lord's presence for what we hear. And when the going gets tough, and it will get tough, we all know this. We who should be strong enough to spiritually carry others will ourselves need to be carried. The Lord gave us one job to do, to make disciples. And He has only one plan to do it. It's life on life, brother to brother, sister to sister. Let's engage in the greatest conquest there is. It is to partner with the Lord as we help one another become more like Jesus. Now, Paul said it well in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, Paul says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works in me. And so having seen the open doors of some of Israel's inheritance, let's now take a tough look at Moses' barred gate. Moses wasn't able to enter the land. Think about that. Though he led the people out of Egypt and 40 years in the wilderness, the Lord closed and locked the gate to the promised land for him. And Moses was not able to enter. Deuteronomy 3, 23 to 29 is this account, so please follow with me. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth that can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, please, please. Literally, that's kind of what it says in the original. Please, Lord, let me go over and see that good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, can you imagine the Lord saying this to you? Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of his people. He shall put them in possession of the land, and you shall see it. So we remain in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. Doesn't that make you want to go find a place and weep? I want to. After all that work, approaching Pharaoh time and time again, leading a million people through the Red Sea is on dry ground interceding for the people over and over again that the Lord would not destroy them for their wickedness. Eighty days, because he went there twice, eighty days the Lord would, or uh, Moses was on the mountain with the Lord, only to hear the Lord say, Moses, you can't go into my land. You can take a sneak peek at it, but you can't put your feet in it. And when Moses talked to the Lord about not going into the land, Pleading with him, okay, we can call it begging him, the Lord got really angry. He told Moses, don't say another word about it, period. One translation of verse 26 puts it this way, the Lord became 
furious with me because of you, and you did not listen to me. Do not continue to speak with me on this matter. How in the world? Prevented from even praying about this personal request? The sad reality was the Lord's mind was made up. No need to pray anymore. He will not hear. In other words, Moses and even his brother Aaron were disqualified to enter the land. Case closed. And why is it, though, that we pray for things that we know are not God's will? Why do we do that? Or we ask for something that, that we already have, and we act as though we don't have it. For example, how many of us pray, Lord, be with us? He is. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. Why do we pray the Lord be with us? Now, I shared this before, but it definitely bears repeating in this venue here. When I was stationed in South Korea, I laugh, but it's, it's appalling. It really is. I was approached by a military couple who exclaimed, Chaplain, we found in one another our soulmate, and we want you to marry us. Well, eventually the story came out that they claimed to be Christians, but they had a problem. See, both of them were married to somebody else. And their plan, yeah, right, and their plan was to divorce their spouses so they could marry their soulmate. My first reaction was a smile because of how ridiculous that request was. And then I became angry. How can these two who claim to know Christ as their Lord and Savior even think about doing what they were planning on doing? And by the way, at the end of our meeting, they said, we pray every day that the Lord will forgive us for what we're about to do. They knew it was wrong, absolutely. And so as forcefully and politely as I could, because I was a military officer after all, I told them where to put their plans. In the garbage. That's what I told them. And for some reason, they didn't want to meet with me anymore. <laughs> you know, there are some things that you just know that you don't need to pray about. And in Moses' case, for the Lord to say yes when he already told Moses no was one of those times. But what did Moses do that was so heinous that God prevented him from entering the land? And what was it that caused Moses to practically accuse the people that it was their fault or he couldn't go? Well, it was a simple act, really. A simple miracle, right? One that happened before. No water in the desert-like wilderness. The people complained and were so angry they wanted to kill Moses. And in Exodus 17, God told Moses to strike the rock at a place called Rephidim. And he did. And the water came out and quenched everybody's thirst. What a miracle that was. God's provision. Well, fast forward about three decades. There was a second time Israel complained about no water, as recorded in Scripture. God led them to another place. There was a rock near Kadesh Barnea. God told Moses to speak to the rock this time, but Moses let his staff do the talking. And he struck the rock twice. Water came out. It was a good, merciful act of God, a good, pragmatic thing 
that happened there. The people's needs were met. However, tragically, Moses was disqualified from entering the land of promise. The reason? He struck the rock instead of speaking to it. Was it indeed only because Moses physically struck the rock? Well, yes and no. I mean, God said, speak, and he struck the rock. But no, because of what Moses' actions meant. And here's the Lord's assessment of this action and all of this that went with it in Numbers 20.12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, again, Aaron as well, Behold, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. Case closed. You're done. God told Moses what to do as they were praying, as Moses and Aaron were on their faces before the Lord, in private as it were. It was he and Aaron on their faces. He did not thunder the command of the people. The people didn't hear it. It was only revealed to Moses and Aaron. But because he did not obey the word that the Lord gave them privately, Moses and Aaron were publicly and permanently disqualified from entering the land. Two things I need to point out. First, disobedience is costly. It's costly. Notice how God treated his choice servant. His choice servant. He didn't destroy Moses, and that's a great thing. But the Lord disqualified him from entering the land. Think about this if you were Moses. When God told Moses, you're going to go and you're going to enter this land flowing with milk and honey, that was how many years prior? Forty years prior. He had his heart set on going there since day one. In spite of the absolute incredible experiences the Lord gave Moses, that one act disqualified him from reaching the land. Second, where was Moses on the timeline when this happened? It's about year 38 of their 40 years wilderness wanderings. Almost there. Almost there. Right before they went around Edom to face the Ammonites and the giants, he almost made it, but he ended up disqualified to receive his reward from entering the land. And the warning, the warning to us should be clear. On the battlefield of life, there are landmines, and only by following the Lord closely do we avoid those landmines. And the harsh reality is God's servants won't be condemned to eternal judgment, but they can become disqualified for service at any time. For along with the privileges of spiritual influence comes the danger of disqualification from ministry, whether it's a pastor or missionary, or even in a home, or in one circle of influence. And time fails us. As we all know, uh, you're probably right now thinking about all the, the high-profile leaders that have, have fallen of recent days. But let alone those who are not high-profile who have fallen as well. They become casualties in the spiritual war. How many are disqualified because their integrity has been riddled through due to sinful compromise? Forgiveness and restoration is the antidote. Yes, it's a blessed thing. But when we sin in front of others, an effective witness is often very difficult to recover. The stakes are high 
Admittedly so. But how valuable is the soul? How precious is the gospel that saves people? And when it's all said and done, and we stand before the Lord, that's it. The Lord is not going to give us pointers of how we can do better in the future. It's done. When we stand before Him on that day, that's evaluation day. Let's be ready. Let's get ready to face Him on that day. I think of what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians about the ministry the Lord entrusted him with. Think about the Corinthians. Remember, we just studied that not too long ago and how pieces of work that they were, right? And how full of integrity Paul was. But Paul gave them his commitment to ministry. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Can you imagine Paul going through all of that and being disqualified? Well, Old Testament example, Moses. All of that, and he was disqualified. Let me give you some challenging words, lyrics of a song, Petra, way back in the day, all right? The song is called Minefield. It's a minefield. You better follow and through. God knows the way. You better stick like glue. It's a minefield. Better stay on his heels because the enemy kills and the enemy steals. So keep your head down. Keep your eyes peeled because life is a minefield. Think the grass is greener? You better look around. Everywhere you look, another casualty is found. Some may feel that they can wander out too far. They may heal, but they always may wear a scar. It's a minefield. You better follow him through. God knows the way. You better stick like glue. It's a minefield. Stay on his heels because the enemy kills and the enemy steals. So keep your head down. Keep your eyes peeled because life is a minefield. Better leave the navigation to the one who knows the way. He will bring illumination. He will light your path each day. It's a minefield. Better watch where you tread. Step off the path and you could end up dead. It's a minefield. Better stay on his heels because the enemy kills and the enemy steals. So keep your head down and keep your eyes peeled because life is a minefield. You know, following Jesus faithfully is our only way of not getting blown up spiritually. We've seen how through one sin, God disqualified Moses from entering the land but he seemed to blame it on the people. And he told them that the Lord was angry with them on account of him on account of you. Was it the people who were to blame? Was it in reality? No, not really. But Moses had it up to here, didn't he? With the complaining people. And he lost it. Simple as that. But even though Moses was disqualified from entering the land, God still had work for his servant to do. A humbling one, which required 
a hugely humble man. Moses had to encourage, think about this, guys, he had to encourage and prepare his replacement. If you've been in a situation like that, you know how difficult that can be. Joshua was to lead the way, but Moses was to die on the east side of the Jordan, barred from entering the land. And as for me, as I reflect on this, how great of a man was Moses? How great of a work did God do to prepare Moses for such a time as that? This is the grace and the power and the mercy of God at work in this man called Moses. I begin the message with raw reality. Fundamentalist Islam is back in front and center of our consciousness. It is a wicked thing. It is not merely a tragic headline explained away by some hyper-radicals who have hijacked a peaceful religion. It is anything but that. As we have, I'm sure all of us have, our prayer lives have stepped up quite a bit, hasn't it? As we close this message, let me give you some insight and maybe a prayer strategy that you could possibly use as you think about this in relation to Afghanistan. I'm convinced that what the Lord is most concerned about, even with all this stuff that's going on, He's most concerned about the salvation of the lost and the building of His church. In a population of almost 40 million people, the rank-and-file Muslim never reads the Quran. Did you know that? Their literacy rate is about 30%. They don't read the Quran. So how do they get their information? It's from the imam. As they go to the mosque on prayers on Friday afternoons, Friday mornings, whatever they do it. And they hear the sermon from the imams. That's how they hear it. And they hear it over and over again that Islam is a religion of peace, etc., etc., ad nauseum. And so now, with these precious souls hearing this over and over again, that's all they know. That's all they know. And now that the Taliban have begun to unleash their fury on their own people, their fellow Muslims, I have every confidence that the common folk will now see how brutal their so-called religion of peace really is. It's common knowledge that the Lord, as we know, sends His powerful angels to appear to the Afghans in dreams and visions. And the church, though underground, exists there on the, on the, um, the Open Doors um, ranking system. Afghanistan is number two. North Korea is, only, is number one. That's how, that's how locked down they are and how oppressed and persecuted our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan is. And when Muslims convert to Christ in Afghanistan, they understand exactly what they're doing. So much different than what it is here so often. They know that to begin to follow the Lord, it's going to cost them dearly. But they're willing to pay the price. And the bottom line in prayer that I have now for the Afghans, these precious souls there, is that the Lord would use the brutality of the Taliban and the witness of the church and the man in white to foster a mass turning to the true and living God, the likes of which no one has ever seen before, even in Afghanistan. If he can do it in Iran, and we know Iran is about the fastest growing church right now, right? Muslim-dominated country, over a million, way over a million people there know the Lord, even in Iran. If he can do it there, he can do it in Afghanistan. Our God is able. 
Our God is capable. The Lord Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, even in Afghanistan. May we pray that though Satan and the principalities and powers mean great harm on the people of Afghanistan, that God will turn this around and mean it for good. And finally, because of the witness of God's people there and the power of the Lord, may many Taliban even come to Christ. Right now, the door of salvation is open even to the most notorious Taliban member. One day, the gate will be locked. It will be barred. And it will be too late for these who don't choose Christ, who don't respond to the gospel and the convicting work of the Spirit. And then these people, these souls, will suffer the wrath of God forever in hell. May we pray that the Lord will save even members of the Taliban. And by the way, if he saved you, save me, he can save them. Let's pray. Lord, this has been a difficult time surrounding your word, trying to get the uh, lay of the land, so to speak, knowing what's going on in the world. It pains us. It grieves us. It angers us. But we know, Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you once again as the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are king even in Afghanistan. You are king even in this place, even in the United States. And so, Lord, we're appealing to you as your servants. Lord, that you would do what only you can do, that you would be glorified in Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, North Korea, even here in the United States. And, Lord, there's so many people here need you. Lord, so many of us here in this room were lost in sin our eyes were blinded, and we were on our way to a Christless eternity in hell. And Lord, you saved us. And Lord, if you can save us, you can save them. So we're appealing to you, Lord, that by your spirit, you will continue to convict. You will continue to bring that home to them of their desperate need for you, Lord Jesus, to be their Lord and Savior. So Lord, we lift them up to you, and we thank you for salvation in Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you that when you hung on that cross, all of our sin, even the sin of the Taliban, were placed upon you. It is a marvelous thing to think about. Amazing, the love that you had and the, the power, the depth of your forgiveness. So, Lord, I pray that you would renew us. You would help us, Lord, to, to continue to pray. You would give us that energy, the spiritual energy that we need to continue on our knees, interceding for these precious souls. And we'll thank you in advance for what you will do. And Lord, now I pray as we turn our attention to our giving, we thank you, Lord, for it, the opportunity to do so. And we ask God also that you'd help us to sing, sing with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, knowing that some people, many people in our world, even in our country, cannot do this. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of it. We pray in Jesus' name.